0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5. This evening we're going to look at a little set of parentheses. A little set of parentheses. Acts chapter 5. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 5. verse. We'll start in verse number 12. We'll read verses 12 down through verse number 16. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, down through verse number 16. The Bible says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought uh, among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed Everyone, you know, you, you hear when you talk about healing, of course, when, when in the modern day faith healing movement, of course, one thing people always say is, Well, if you have the power to heal, then why don't you just go out and go into the hospital and clear out the hospital and go into the children's hospital and clear that out? And, but you see, this is basically what they were doing. This is basically what they were doing. In fact, that's a valid question because it says that. The people were bringing them into the streets. They were bringing them from all over the place. And look at that last, that last clause at the end. And they were healed, every one. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's the biblical ministry of healing. Of course, we know that uh, as we studied before, healing was not the main event. It was a confirmation of what they were preaching. That was the main event. But we won't rehash that all tonight. So let's go ahead and pray And then we'll look at this little set of parentheses that we find in this set of verses. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your people that are here. Thank you for their desire uh, to be here tonight. Thank you for their uh, desire to hear from your word. Thank you, Lord, as well for those that are listening in by means of the Internet. And Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for, uh, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you for these examples, this exemplary church that you uh, that you've put in your Word, and Lord, it's not just a, just a narrative or a story for us to follow, but Lord, this is a historical fact. These things happened, and these people were no different than than we are, and they have the, the they have the same Lord as we have, the same Spirit as we have, and uh, but Lord, it's a, a good example of how that you can work in the church. And Lord, I pray for our church, Choice Hills Baptist Church, that you would really work among us. Lord, that you would not leave us alone to our own devices, leave us alone to our own indifference. We pray that you would stir us up, that you would take away from us the dross that might be present, that you would rid us of the sin that uh, that we might be holding on to in some way. I pray as we approach this meeting coming up here in a week and a half that you would truly, Lord, meet with us and help the preacher as he preaches, Lord, and give him just perfect understanding as to what he should say and the boldness to speak it plainly. And, Lord, give us the grace and help, Lord, and humbleness that we might receive it as we should. Lord, really, I pray you would stir us up and uh, that you would use this time as we think about the past but also, as we think about the future, you would give us a clear vision for what's ahead. But Lord, as we look at these verses, give us understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So, what we see is in this uh, set of parentheses is we. The Bible says uh, many by by the hands of many by by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Interesting. I, I had a question. A really off. I wouldn't say off the wall question, but it was an unexpected question that someone asked me, uh, someone who I think knows the answer, but nevertheless, he was asking me the question about, he said, what would you do? What do you say to someone who is, who believes in that they're an apostle? What do you say to someone who believes that they are an apostle? Maybe one day in my, in my missions class at Tabernacle, we, we, uh, we, talk, we cover that subject. What is an apostle? Are there apostles? But what we're talking about here is you notice the hands of the apostles are the ones doing these signs because, in other words, all these miraculous signs are associated with the apostles. You notice it. this, this says... The, the apostles were the ones performing these signs. And, of course, to be an apostle, these are what, these are what you might call the signs of an apostle. That's what Paul said. The signs of, the, of an apostle were wrought in him. And, of course, you know there was a requirement. Who knows what a requirement to be one of the, counted one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. There's one major requirement. What is it? You had to, you had to actually see with your eyeballs the resurrected Christ. And so, um, but anyhow, let's move on. Let's keep going. Verse, uh, the middle of verse 12 says, And they were all, that's the church now, with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, we've already talked about this meeting place. At this point in in time, the churches had no meeting place like we think of a meeting place. It would be, be quite some time before the churches had liberty to have open meeting places like we have, like we enjoy, we enjoy uh, a place to worship, a place to meet together, a place to hear the Word of God, a place to sometimes even bring people to hear the gospel that we have been praying for. And uh, and so we thank the Lord for that, but that is not the case here. But notice, this is one of the characteristics of this, I, I keep calling it an exemplary church, what I mean by that is an example to us. It's, in other words, what we see in the book of Acts with the first church, the church at Jerusalem, are, it sets the standard for what God can do and what God will do and what God does. It sets the standard. It's not intended that this what we read in the book of Acts is not intended to be a, a goal or a, a standard that's not attainable. Actually, rather the opposite. It's intended to be to, to, to let us know what it's like to practice first century Christianity. I saw a, what was it? I, I saw a sign. Where was I? Ah, we were at Crown College. We went to their bookstore. Interesting bookstore, but they had a shirt or, or a book. It was a book. And the title of the book is something to the effect of um something to the effect of a 21st century church or something like that. But instead, where it said 21st century, the word 20 was crossed out. I thought that was good. That is being a first century church in the 21st century. That's the goal, right? That's why we're reading Acts. And this is a frozen in time. The things we read here are frozen in time. The question is, are we going to do these things? Am I going to do the things we read here? That's the question. Same God, same Spirit, same gospel. Everything's the same. Everything's the same. Everything is the same. In fact, you're part of this same body that they're a part of, the body of Christ. Are we going to be a first century church? As we go toward our, as we go toward our anniversary, our 50th anniversary, are we going to, are we going to commit ourselves to God as a group to be a first century church following these examples? You know, that's one of the reasons that I believe the Lord led me to study, for us to study together the book of Acts, so that we could see the way it's supposed to be done, right? We could see the way it's supposed to be. Not all these other things that cloud, our, you know, that cloud our focus. What do you see in the book of Acts? You see them preaching, preaching. I was teaching last night in my missions class at Tabernacle, preaching. And by the way, pray for Tabernacle. Pray for Tabernacle Baptist Church. You might not have ever been to Tabernacle Baptist Church. Ben went for the first time a couple of weeks ago. But that church has had a major impact on this area. And they're in a hard place right now. This coming Sunday, Brother Jeremy Chisholm, who is the who was the pastor of Bethany and Travelers Rest, is going to be preaching there to be a candidate to be the next pastor. Jeremy's actually a little bit younger than me, and next Sunday, the Sunday of our anniversary, they're voting on him to be the pastor. And so, pray if you think about it, please pray for Tabernacle Baptist Church that God would help them and help him and his family as well as Bethany as well. So. Keep that, keep that in mind. But anyway, as we, as we try to be a... I was teaching my missions class about what the, church, what the early church was doing, and every, everywhere you look in the Bible, they're preaching, they're preaching, they're preaching, they're preaching, they're preaching. You know why? Because they took that great commission that we've already studied. Very, seriously. It was very... It wasn't a commission to be obeyed in, by convenience. It was... It was they were going to obey no matter what. And as we'll see, even as the persecution turns up, they still obey it. They still obey it. And so we find in Acts 5, they were all talking about an exemplary church, an example. This is not the only time we find that this church is in one accord, right? Let's look at chapter 1. Just hold your place here and just uh, go with me really quick. Chapter 1, verse 14, notice what the Bible says. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Notice they're in one accord. But notice the connection to prayer. They're in one accord in prayer. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Right? Chapter two, look at verse number 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat and eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, there's no mention of prayer in that verse, but you just go a couple of verses above that. Verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. There's a a connection between praying and being in one accord. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. And when they heard that, of course, they've been released from their examination they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. What are they doing? They're praying. Look at verse number 32. I love this verse. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. It is a characteristic of the first century church that they, at least at this point... Now, what you're going to find, though, is as we go through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is dissension begins to creep in. Dissension does begin to creep in. And they, they lose, at least to some degree, that unity that they had. And that is the natural tendency. It's not a good tendency, but it is natural, all right? But it is a characteristic of this first century church that this church was unified. It sets a standard for us. Now, our church doesn't have any large disagreements. But I, wanna, I just want us to look at the idea of unity very briefly. Um, the idea of unity, the idea of, of being in one accord is not about being uniform. Do you understand what, I, what I'm trying to say with the difference? To be uniform, when, 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 you, when you're in the military, the Marine Corps, and you, uh, you all dress the same, there's a uniform of the day that's a uniform because you're all wearing the very same thing. That's why I call it a uniform. So what, the Lord does not require uniformity. He wants us to have unity. What that means is, Christian unity is not the same as uniformity. There can be differences. There can be differences. And furthermore, being in one accord is not simply, well, I don't have, I'm not miffed at somebody else, so I don't have a, I, I'm not angry at someone else. There's more to it than that. It's a lot more, it's more important than just, like, I don't have a problem with any of you. Like, I'm not angry at any of you. I like all of you. I like to talk to all of you. Literally, I mean, every single person in here. I like to talk to you, sit down with you, chat with you. I'm looking around just to make sure. That's not unity, though. That's good. And actually, that's more of a fruit of unity, but that's not unity. That's not being in one accord. There can be unity despite differences. You know why? Because of the love of Christ between us, put there by the Holy Spirit whom we all possess. See, here's the thing. If you can't, if we can't be in one accord with someone who is different, has a different idea, a different belief, a different whatever, and, you know, when I say there's limits, of course, I mean, you're talking about a heretic, that's something different. But if you, if, 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 if you can only, if I can only be, get along with someone and be in one accord with someone who is in agreement with me in every, in every point, That's not unity. That's uniformity. I am requiring uniformity to to, to be in one accord. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches being in one accord, being in unity despite differences because there is a higher thing, which is the love of Christ between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at Acts 4.32 once again. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul one heart and of one soul. Let let me pause just a second. I mentioned a minute ago how that prayer is connected in in these texts to unity. This church was in one accord. This church was in prayer with one another. This church was in one accord. This church was praying together. I mentioned that not too long ago, right? So here's what I'm going to say about this meeting coming up. On Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, we're going to have a prayer room in the back, the Sunday school room across from Karen's office. I'm going to set up some chairs, some places to pray. And I'm going to be in there. I'm going to go back there an hour before the service on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and then each night at 6 o'clock. And I just want to encourage you to come join me to pray for our church, to pray for the meeting, to pray for the preacher, to pray for yourselves, for ourselves. I'm going to be back there. I just want to to invite you to join me. Some people can't come work and different things. There's no like, you know, I'm not taking names or anything like that. But I invite you to come join me. Let's pray together to really see the Lord do something in our church. Not for our church, but for God. For the name of Christ, that we would be the believers He wants us to be and that this this community, this city would be affected, would be influenced and impacted by this church. Let's pray big and let's pray together. And I just want to invite you to join me to do that. Now notice what it says in verse number uh, 32 again and the multitude of them that believed. Anytime you have a multitude of people, you have differences, right? Anytime you have a multitude of people, you have differences. You don't have to have, you have 10 people. That's hardly a multitude. But even even among our group here, I don't know how many people are here, but there's not, there's more than 10, but there's not quite a multitude, I wouldn't say. And even among us, there's differences. Some people are from the north, some people are from the south. Some people have different backgrounds come from different, different faith kind of backgrounds. Some people have had different, some people came up in Christian homes. Some people came up with the polar opposite to a Christian home. You know, and then you look at it, you look in the scripture, what kind of different things? You, what we, one thing we do see is there were different social status statuses here. How do we know? Because they were taking up collections, right? And distributing it to the poor. So there were people that had money and there were people that didn't. And yet they were together. They weren't the same. They were together. They were in one accord despite the differences. But think of other things that you would see in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. Different ethnic groups and cultures. Think of the Jews and the Gentiles together in one body. Different languages. You have Latin. You have Greek. You have Hebrew. All commonly spoken at this time. Hebrew less so, except for the Jews. But then even even in the Greek and Latin speaking world... You had small little people groups that each had their own little, little mom, they call it mother tongue. You know, mama language, I was going to say. It was what they call it, I think they call it in Cambodian. Mother tongue. So you have different languages, you have different backgrounds. Some came from Judaism, some came from heathenism and idolatry. You have people of different ages, different genders. Different education levels, even among the, the the apostles. You have Peter, who was a an uneducated man by you know by the standards of that day, and then you have Paul, who was a very well educated man. And as we saw, there are different people in social status. You know, there's a mention in Philippians of people that had believed and believed in Christ in Caesar's household. They're in a high social status, and then you had people that were just beggars, like we saw the lame man in chapter four. So, the Lord does not require us to be the same. He has built into the church that we be different. We should be different. We are different. And yet, we still have unity. Notice what verse 32 says. We have one heart and one soul So the question is, what was unified among them? It certainly wasn't social status and age and gender and background and religion and language and culture. No, 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 those things were different. So what was the same? You know what was the same? The heart and the soul. The inside. The inside. You think about the things related to the inner man. That is what... Those things are what, are what are what is common between us in the church. Things like love as brethren, our goals to walk with God, our desire is to please Him. Our, our, our desire to edify one another. Those are, those are goals that are common. Those are goals that deal with the inner man, the heart and the soul. And those are things that all believers should have, no matter what other differences there might be. See, when you have one heart and one soul, all the external differences, even disagreements in the way we think and what we think is important and those kinds of things take lesser of an, of an importance because our heart and soul. You know, listen, one, one thing I, I learned from Brother Stewart is, you know, whenever there's a problem and there's a disagreement, between, between believers, one thing you can always go back to is if you can just stop and say, but what are they trying to do? What is their goal? What is their desire? They might be doing something different than me. They might do something I don't like or whatever. But if I can look at that believer and I can say, you know, for whatever the difference might be, it, they love God and they are trying to live for God and trying to do what's right. When you can look at that heart and look at that soul, that just, that kills the problem. It doesn't make it go away completely, but it kills the difference. And it helps you despite the difference to be in one accord because you have one heart and one soul, you see. So, God does not require uniformity to be in unity. And again, I don't think our, pro- our, our church has a problem with unity. I think our church is doing well. But it's, it's written here for a reason. It's an example. We should be in unity and there should not be anyone in the church that we dislike or anything like that. We should love one another. We should care for one another and we should think well and, and, uh, and good of, of each other. We should exalt and lift up each other higher than ourselves, each and every person. This is what it means to have one heart and one soul. Now, let's keep going in chapter 5, verse number 13. We're still in the parentheses now. And of the rest, so in the beginning of the parentheses, we're talking about the church being in one accord in Solomon's porch. Verse 13, and of the rest, so this is referring to all everyone else who's not part of the church. This is like unbelievers, okay? And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the pe- people magnified them. This is a weird thing. The Lord puts forth this church as an exemplary church, the standard to which we should, we should aspire, right? And here he is commending the church because nobody wanted to join it. Right? All those unbelievers out there, they, they're not, I ain't joining that church. That's what it says, right? Think about it. That's a weird thing to say. It's, a, it's a unusual, to, especially to our way of thinking. It's a very counterintuitive way for, to think. God commending a church because nobody wanted to join it. <laughs> well, I hope we don't have that problem. <laughs> but think about it. At this, point, at this point in the church, you've got persecution starting. You've got what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. And we read about the fear that was not only in the church, but it reverberated outside of the church. And they're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I ain't joining that church. But you know what the effect of that was? At this point in the early church, false believers were not joining it. It was pure. Pure. This is what we call, and this is one of, the, one of the arguments for what we call regenerate church membership. What that means is, biblically speaking, I forget Baptist for a minute. I'm Baptist, but there's not we're only Baptist because of the Bible, right? So, biblically speaking, you can't be a member of a church unless you're saved. But we know people come into church and join churches, especially in, of all places, Greenville, South Carolina. People join churches that aren't converted. That happens all the time because they have their little profession of faith and they've been baptized and they, have, they join a church and they're not even born again. It's true. In fact, Wiersbe, uh, not Wiersbe, Ironside said this on, this on this verse. He says, the curse, and this is him saying, it. Just, listen to this. The curse of Christianity today is that vast numbers of members of Christian churches have never been saved. Their hearts are in the world, and they love the things of the world. This mixed multitude has always hurt the testimony of the church. That's true. Yeah, I can say that because I was one. I had my little profession, and I'd been baptized, da-da-da. And I was a member of this church, you know. Thankfully, Sister Karen kept good records, and when I actually did get saved and she got the right, the right membership card, I don't even know where the original one went or if I even feel, I don't even know. Anyway, that's the one after I got saved, so I think it was. Anyway, it don't matter now. But the point, the Bible teaches regenerate church membership, but what you have here is the lost people were not even wanting to join this church because they dared not. They were afraid. And when the Bible does speak, we won't go into all this, uh, all, the, all the detail, but the Bible speaks of false brethren. The Bible speaks of spots in feasts of charity in the church. The Bible speaks of wolves in sheep's clothing among the sheep. So later, this became a problem, especially when the, when the churches began to have more liberty and there wasn't such a price to be paid. Now you start having people that do not have... They do not have real faith. Because here's the the issue. When you're persecuted and things like that are happening in a church, like with Ananias and Sapphira, the only thing that makes you want to join the church is you have a real and sincere and authentic faith in God. That's what makes you want to join it. Absent that, forget it. It ain't worth it. And so they didn't. But that's that's a good thing, because that means this church was pure. Think of that. Everyone in there had the Spirit of God. Everyone in there was a child of God. You didn't have this, as the Bible, the Bible describes in Exodus, a mixed multitude, some believers, some not. Well, I know, listen, I know they're all on the roll, Sister Karen. Sister Karen's just the secretary. She's, she's not responsible for everybody being saved. She's responsible for maintaining what's on the card, right? <laughs> but imagine if you had a role, a church role or, you know, a membership, 25% of people aren't even converted. How many problems that causes? Because people, I mean, how they act? They act according to the flesh. That's all they got. They don't have the Spirit of God. They act unconverted because they are unconverted. How many problems does that cause in a church? You see what I'm saying? This is why, this is why we believe, and the Bible does teach it, in regenerate church members. When someone comes to join, we want to know: are you really saved? <laughs> Do you really know, know God? This church was commended because it was pure and people dared not join it. But that's not all. Keep reading. But the people magnified them. So the same people who dared not join it lifted them up. The Christians says, man, I ain't touching it. This is my paraphrase. They're like, I ain't touching it. But what they guys real. I ain't touching it, but whatever they got, that's the real deal. Don't you want people to say that about you? And what's interesting is usually, there's a a verse in 1 Corinthians 14, it's it's just kind of in passing, it says, it was talking about tongues and prophesying, preaching versus tongues, and he says, if everybody uh, spoke in tongues, nobody would know what's being spoken. But if, ever, if they prophesy, if they preach, then, then a man will be, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing, but it says a man will be convicted and he'll say, he'll confess that God is in you of a truth. In other words, it's very similar to this. They magnified them. Yes, this is true. Look at what's going on here. And usually the progress, a progression of someone that comes to God, comes to Christ, it usually starts with either indifference or flat out hostility. And then it progresses to magnifying Christians until they finally get saved. In other words, they go from a place where they're either indifferent, don't care, or they're flat out hostile to the gospel, and then they realize it's true. And what those people are doing, and their faith is real, but they haven't quite gotten, gotten to the point where they want to get saved. They're, they're lifting up, they're magnifying believers. Listen, you and I ought to live in such a way our church ought to have such, I dare not say reputation, but a testimony before God, not just for optics, the way it looks, but the way we are, such that people say, people know what's going on in there is real. That doesn't mean you're going to join our church. You know, what? I don't want an unbeliever to join our church. I don't want a wolf to sh- to s- or a false brother or sister. S- you know slime their way into our church and just so that we can have another another card and <laughs> we don't want that no now if if somebody gets saved and they get baptized and want to join great or if they're moving or whatever moving into town or whatever that's fine but we don't want unbelievers to join our church the church is for God's people and people visitors that we bring in but they're not they're not coming to be a part of us they're coming to hear the truth but these unbelievers though they wouldn't touch the church They didn't want to join it. They magnified them. Now, here's the reason for that there is a difference between magnifying the believers and believing unto salvation. You know what the difference is? They exalted and lifted up these Christians because of what they saw, but but those unbelievers had not yet come to the point where they were willing to deal with their own sin. They knew it was true. They knew it was real. But they they weren't quite at that point where their sin was something they wanted to deal with. But that's in a good place. You're going in the right direction if you're there. Right? And then finally, you see the progression. It concludes in verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. You see that? Now you have... They dare not touch the church. They magnify the church. And now they're getting saved. They're coming to to Christ. And notice it says the believers were added not to the church, but to the Lord. You know, you can, I keep on mentioning Sister Karen. She's she's in the hot seat tonight, I guess. You can fill out a membership card, but if you're not added to the Lord, you're not going to heaven, right? You gotta be added to the Lord. And of course, that's a, you know, that you could easily connect that to baptism by the Spirit, be, being in the body of Christ, which is, which is what happens when you get saved. Notice there were only believers that were added to the Lord. That goes back to where we were talking about uh, regenerate church membership. Because they were the ones, notice it's the believers. Because only authentic faith is willing to risk persecution and ostracization. ostracization. Help me say that. Sister Aguilar, say it. Ostracization. So I had it right once. Yes, the fact of being ostracized. <laughs> Only authentic faith risks persecution and, and that, uh, the fact of being ostracized for the name of Christ. Because the reality is persecution often thins the ranks of the church. And that weak, puny faith if it's not real. They fall away. They ain't worth it. Now, they usually don't say, I don't believe in Christ. Usually they just decide to go to a different variety of church that's maybe not so, whatever. So it kind of covers them and they save face. But that's really what it's about. Because persecution, like we see here, puts faith to the test to determine its authenticity. And you know what? These days, the reality is, it costs so little to be a Christian. So little. And, you know, I'm not complaining. I mean, I don't want to be persecuted, right? But the reality is the effect is it's so easy to just play the part. Listen, you know, I I love this church and I love you all. But man, don't you want to be a church that's real, that has authentic faith, right? That's, That's full of people that are the real deal that really believe the gospel, that know God. Not just have your name on a card. Not just have a big crowd. I, I, I wish this place was full. But, I mean, that's what, we, that's what we want. We want a pure church. And notice lastly in verse 14, who added them to the Lord, believers? Who added these? Of course, Jesus did, because Jesus is the builder of the church. He is the one that gives it increase. What is our job? Our job is not to build our church. There is nowhere in the Bible you're going to find, and this is floating around in my mind because of uh, September 3rd on Sunday morning, I want to talk about this, but there's nowhere in the Bible where God tells us as a church to make our church bigger. There is something we do as a church, but Jesus builds the church. Jesus is the builder. He adds to the church. It is our duty to walk with Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. And leave the building to Him. And He'll use what we do. Of course, He'll use the means of us obeying Him. But He is the builder. You know, you see, you see in Acts chapter 5, not, not just Acts 5, one of the other characteristics beside being in one accord of uh, this early church was the fact that it had numerical growth just crazy. You know, that means something. That means something. It was an indication of the Lord working in uh, in this church in a a magnificent way. But really, that's what the Lord did. You know, you could short-circuit this process and have numerical growth, and you could change stuff to get people in and coerce people and manipulate people to do that. We're not doing that. We're just going to try to, it might be boring, but we're just going to try to obey the Lord, walk with the Lord. We're going to try to be holy. We're going we're to do our best to get over our timidity and tell people about Jesus and give out tracts and share our testimony. and that. Look, it's, it's, it's that simple. And we'll leave all, that, all the rest of it to the Lord to do. And pray that he'll do it. That he'll build. He'll build this church. That this church will be everything that the Lord wants it to be. Let's pray.